How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jake. And you're listening to the Cinema Side Show Podcast, episode 169. <laughs> Good one, Zeke. I smell today. I've got my arm up, grabbing, we- grabbing my head. Weeks and- of anticipation for that number, and all you give it is a... <laughs> that's all you can give it, really. Fair enough. Yeah, that's that's part of it. Yeah. That's part of it. I was just saying, I'm ris- I've risen my arm up, and now I can smell myself. I'm like, oh, I don't smell too hot. Yeah. That's well, okay. it's okay. I'm socially distanced from you. That's true. How how long is the width of my table? Because you're that far away from me. Yeah. Holding my door-stopping baby Yoda. It's very cute. You, are you cute happy there? Cute Grogu. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Grogu. Petting it. That's right. We're going to call it Grogu now, don't we? <laughs> I don't agree with these norms. He's how, baby Yoda in my heart. How are you, Jake? <laughs> I'm, doing, I'm doing all right. I'm, um... Yeah. You know what? This is a really special episode, actually, because obviously we're talking about the last waltz. Yeah. Which is, I guess, probably fair to say one of your favorite films of all time. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I'd, I'd definitely, I'd put it in a top ten for sure. Yeah. Probably my favorite documentary at all, of all time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's that's definitely something we're going to talk about. Is is it's very much pseudo documentary, but it's it's very much just a performative music video slash concert mm. um so i think i think it melds in a lot of ways which is really interesting but to jump i guess straight into our a fact of the week because i found mine and it's a bit it's a bit uh, what's the word obscure i guess mm-hmm. is the word up but, but i think it relates to us both in a very interesting way um so of course the concert itself was not not every single thing that was performed in the concert was put into the film, yeah, uh, which of course was directed by Martin Scorsese. There were notable musicians that were actually omitted from the final cut, like Stephen Stills, who was part of the one of the jam sessions. So I don't think that made it into the cut. And then you got other poets, uh, like Robert Duncan, for example. And one of the other ones I noticed was Free Wheelin' Frank Reynolds, which is uh, that name is very familiar for us. As <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> we co-directed a short film called Faces in the Crowd, in which the protagonist is a stand-up comedian named Frank Reynolds. So mm-hmm. in terms of performing on stage, it's a funny connection right there. Absolutely. So, I like yeah. that. That's a good fact. Yeah, yeah. It's um, interesting. Well, mine's actually a little bit more... Uh, well, it's interesting for a different reason. Were you um, just about to say a little bit more interesting? No. I <laughs> was not. Excuse you. Um, no, I, I find this quite interesting because it sort of um, appeals to... Particularly the imperfections of live performance, which I think is a nice, not obviously a, a major theme of, of mm. this documentary, but something that doesn't explicitly get talked about a lot. And I'll, I'll sort of dive into it more in the second half. But my fact is, uh, during performance, uh, during the performance of the song Mystery Train, which is relatively yes. early on, uh, performed by Paul Butterfield, uh, the stage lights blew out, uh, leaving only oh. one spotlight left on the stage. Now, this is quite interesting because obviously when... Later, more towards the midpoint of the documentary where Neil Young performs Helpless, Joni Mitchell mm. is actually backstage doing the background vocals. They do cut yes. to it, yes. but she's silhouetted in, in darkness, and this is due to that stage light being oh, blown really? out. Oh, um, really? Wow, that's cool. Because I noticed that as well as her being behind the stage, and I know it was because she went on to play... Um, Coyote. Coyote, that's it. And I know that that was the idea was meant to be... Was, it was a bit of a sequel where she's got her little bit in Helpless, but then... Still surprises the audience. Oh, she's actually here. Here we go. Yeah. I mean, that was the idea behind it, but I thought they were just reinforcing that through film lighting language 
that she's in silhouette and that we as the audience watching the film still a hint of and mystery but i guess it's not <laughs> it's it's kind of funny because the imperfection does actually sort of create meaning in that particular thing because of her because of the context of the song that yep. Neil Young's singing she is meant to be this disembodied ethereal presence so mm. putting her backstage silhouetted in lighting actually and Joni Mitchell has such an iconic voice and, and yeah. is very ghostly and very ethereal and so unique um, for that time and even now. And I think it's why a lot of Joni Mitchell songs have almost had a renaissance in especially film mediums there. They appear, we lived, like I said last week, the the seminal piece sung in Coda is a Joni Mitchell song. So, yeah. Um, <laughs> so Crazy it's, turnaround, yeah. Yeah, and she definitely pops up a lot when if you actually know what you're listening for. So, sure. Um, it ended up working for the better, but it was really just a diegetical issue of the of yeah it's of the, the lighting lighting issue it's crazy and, and it's, there's tons of stories like that at the production and how like intense it was and sort of how everyone had to work together to really get it going mm. i wrote a few of them we can get into throughout the the discussion i guess but nah i love that because you're right it works completely within the the like film world of what we're watching in terms of the ethereal mystery angle of the song and the way it's shot and even her appearance within the concert, but that, oh, I guess the lights blew yeah, out. Yeah, <laughs> and we're, and we, we're going to touch on sort of how kind of interesting the the way that the structure plays out in mm. the film and second half of the show to intentional stylistic choices, yeah. which sort of make it diverge away from just a recording of a concert. Oh, like, God, yeah. A million uh, things. And start to yeah. push it way more into a documentary, a music documentary, which you know we'll go we'll can touch on why this this particular music documentary is sort of hallmarked as either you know the best of all time yeah um, yeah from a cultural and from a filmic point of view but well it's funny because it has all that going for it but as i was alluding to earlier with this being sort of a special week because it's not it's actually not the first documentary we've done proper we've done like dick johnson is dead and a few things like that but what's so i guess serpentipitous I think that's the pronunciation of word, um, about this choice and doing it at this time is that we've had this slot for episode... I think it was going to be either 168 or 169 for a long time. We were going to do The Cat Empires. I think it's on the attack, isn't yeah. it? That DVD. We were going to slot that in in conjunction with them doing their final WA performance ever as the original lineup. And it kind of worked out that even though that ended up being cancelled because of the you know all the COVID regulations around WA... Um, and as sad as it is, we're never going to have that final knowing before. We've seen them both, respectively, several times. Yeah. But this one being the one where we knew this was going to be the final one. And in turn, for not being able to do, to cover that film on the podcast and, and see them live knowingly ever, because mm. it's, it's, the opportunity's gone now. Unless, I don't know, we fly to Adelaide. I think, I think it's I think done, they're actually it? done, done They're now. done, done. Yeah. Because yeah, all, all respective shows have either been... Performed, or performed, or, yeah. yeah, which is yeah. really sad. But I think you know you brought this to the show, and you've loved this film forever. And I imagine you've wanted to do this on the show for a long time. Yeah. But it, I think the timing is just so perfect because we're at that stage emotionally, where one of our favorite bands of all time has just done their last live show, mm. and we're going to be talking about this film and the context that that brings in terms of bands doing live gigs as its original lineup, and then finishing yeah, and having it. that finality to it and yeah. it's going to be really interesting sort of talking about that side of it um in the second half of the show yeah it's fascinating now zeke 
The poster behind you, 1100 films you must watch at least once in your lifetime, is the last waltz on this poster. Absolutely. It's actually not. That's crazy. <laughs> it's not in the poster, I checked. Yeah, there's a lot of Scorsese um, on that poster. Right, and yeah. Yeah, I could... It's crazy, because I think it's actually one of, if not his, like, most... One of his highest-rated films on his letterbox catalog. <laughs> Probably, yeah. It's like um, 4.1 or something. Well, I, I agree with you in the sense that it really should be on the poster, because... Like you said, it's not just a flat documentary. It's an amalgamation of things and, and its resonance and just the stories behind the making of it. I think absolutely make it a film worth watching. Yeah. I went in knowing virtually nothing about the band, you know, the band, the band, and I got so much out of this film that I think really everyone should watch yeah, it. Yeah, and I think, you know, and there, you know, you just had that, I think it was the Rolling Stones article up on talking about it retrospectively up before oh yeah i didn't end up reading it but it's there the, but it, um, is it a variety thing uh, variety fair okay or vanity fair, vanity fair. and yep. it's sort of i mean rolling stones has said it, it says it on the dvd cover but it's it's yeah. like one of the most culturally significant nights in music history at least in 20 like 21st century and for it to yeah. occur in 1976 you know where a lot of these artists that are coming on to perform sort of over that 16-year period the band existed, all kind of paralleled their own careers at the same time. So to have this amalgamation and celebration of this band that has supported a lot of those artists or worked with those artists in collaboration, I mean, there's a myriad of trivia facts of not only just musicians, Mm -hmm. but Hollywood stars coming to set and yeah, checking yeah. out something that mentioned Jack Nicholson came to the set and talked to Scorsese because he was friends with yeah. some of the people performing. Like it, it's such a cultural, like a cultural epicenter um, that sort of really reflected the ability that music can have over time. And yeah. I think that that's very, you know, quite awesome. And we'll jump more into detail in the second half of the show on that. Yeah. But a hundred percent should be on anyone's list who appreciates music or appreciates you know documentaries yeah for 1100 films and i know like right next to this film not far away was the hills have eyes and i'm like really like i get his importance we talked about nightmare nightmare on elm street but like come on this film's amazing are you kidding me yeah i don't know um well the the only other thing i want to talk about i'll tie it into what i've been watching in this past week because again the last few weeks i've been talking about rewatching better call soul rewatching better call soul mm. rewatching better call soul and it's almost by by the next podcast I'm going to be talking about it in which it comes to stand the new um, season premiere. But I want to ask you a question specifically. And I don't think you've actually heard this yet. This got announced very recently. And I have mixed feelings about the announcement. But it's out there, so you can't really call it a spoiler anymore because you have AMC actively talking about it. Sure. But they just announced that Brian Cranston and Aaron Paul will be in this last season of Better Call Saul. They're going to have guest appearances. I don't know how many episodes. So your problem with this is why why spoil it? Why did they announce this? Yeah, which yeah, look, I'm against. I'm, I'm but I'm be against it anyway. If you're six seasons into a show, um, how many more added viewers are you going to get at this point? Yeah. I mean, if you're not on the better call saw train at this point, you're probably not going to be on it until long after the show's completely finished yeah. on air i don't know other than like those random people who don't care about the story jumping in, in the sixth season because how much time is there to catch up 
we're like nine days away, eight days away from season six premiering. Yeah. So anyone who, like me, is rewatching the show or anyone who's like, oh, I should try and get onto it now before it finishes, you're really sort of pushing the envelope on how many... That That's 50 episodes to catch up on in a week. Like, that's a real, honest-to-God binge right there. So, for example, you haven't seen the show yet. No. So it's like, I don't think this announcement, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, I don't think this announcement's going to make you want to sit down and watch all five seasons no. in a week. And I was about to, I was actually about to concur with that by saying, like, if you said someone who has never seen Breaking Bad, but of course, or, or El Camino, yeah. you go, oh, and they've just started watching it, you'd be like, oh, well, stick around, because El Camino is going to have a cameo of Walt. It's like you, the, the, the hype, yeah, yeah. like, you, it would be the same as spoiling that when the El Camino movie came out. Like, the reality is, it's like... If you watch, if you started watching Breaking Bad now, or even if you watched it now chronologically, if you did Better Call Saul, yeah, uh, I I still the many I, Zeke, I've been in many relationships in my life since Better Call Saul started airing, and almost every one of them I've wanted to do this experiment of I'm gonna make you watch Soul before Breaking Bad. Yeah, I'm gonna commit to this one day. Yeah, I'm gonna and, get Kirsty onto it. But. Yeah, and that's it. It's like <laughs> we'll see. So you do better, but it's like even like even if you watch Breaking Bad, like I said, and then El Camino, like you're not gonna have the same. Oh, like if you watched yep. Breaking Bad <laughs> and then immediately watched El Camino, seeing Brian Cranston appear is not yep. gonna give you like the. Oh well, that's kind of like that's crazy cool. What a cameo! So yeah. it'd be the same. It'd be the same thing if if you had never watched any of these properties yep. and then chose one day five years from now to watch them because oh you heard all this hype it'd be like 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 if i started watching the wire and there's a really right. cool cameo at some point in the wire i'm you're, not gonna you're not gonna understand the significance of it yeah because you didn't you weren't there when it happened in real time yeah it's like i'm still gonna enjoy the wire but yeah. all those cameos just disappear yeah so and it's weird because like i got this feeling i, I know the rain's very loud right now so you, it's probably gonna you, come through the mics so it's it's asmr yes enjoy it audience but I've noticed this trend, and I was talking about it with my friend Ellie as well, who you know she loves the show. And we were talking about like, was what was the point of spoiling it? I'll I'll take yeah. her point in that this almost sort of divvies up the attention that this is going to get away from trying to spoil the actual plot of the show. Because if you've if you've been watching Better Call Saul, at the point in the series that we're up to, you're so far away and removed from the Breaking Badness of it all. Like the stuff that I'm most excited to see. Is yeah, like the the Mike and Gus and and Nacho, yeah. all that stuff's like amazing. But it's like I'm so much more committed to the Jimmy, Kim Howard story, that kind of almost has nothing to do with Breaking Bad. And yeah. I'm wondering how like Walt coming into that affects but, it. But that's the but it's I think what you did if you've highlighted exactly why they would do it because you're not really gonna you don't like you're they're gonna appear and you're gonna get excited. Oh, cool! There's Walt and Jesse, but. Like you said, your focus is actually you're fully invested in that the better call source story. You, yeah. The cameos are just a, an added bone, a, a null bonus for you. Well, what they do is the big cameos, like when Gus finally came in in the third season, they announced it well in advance. In fact, what I liked is that they actually they planted it in season two, where all the titles, the first letter of each title rearranged, spells out friends back. Yeah. And people re- people worked that out like, seven months before they said anything, of like, oh, yeah, by the way, Gus is back. They've and, done but it. But then the small cameos, like, Huel, that, that was just a total surprise. And it's like, oh, those are cool. Yeah. But it's the little cameos. They've done the same marketing technique with, and I know this is a complete and utter, they did it with Cobra Kai. 
Okay. They did it. So, the start of season four, they introduced, like, they announced Terry Silver's going to be, like, the who's the Karate Kid right. 3 villain. Okay. Um, now, watching all three parts, it's like... So, it's like, oh, it's cool. That's nifty. It's like... Yeah. But, obviously, it's such a low-stake show. Like, introducing it, <laughs> be like, oh, cool. They're really getting everyone back. So, everyone knows that there's a good chance that the guy who plays, like, Mike Barnes is going to be the season five villain. Sure. Yeah. And you're like... That'll be really cool because they've got the, the fact that they've managed to get everyone to come in now. It's like, so it's I guess it's just to like in the Gus like soft launch. It's right. like <laughs> you're just like oh how like you are you're these questions you're posing. How do they fit in the plot? Yeah, you're they they're getting you talking about the show. So I guess yeah, that's yeah. yielding it. I I don't see the point really when you're at the end. Like, what would be the point? It, yeah, because I'm with you in the sense that I don't think this is going to boost viewership in the way that they must think it's going to. Because the people onto it are so invested into the story they've been carefully building. Like, for me, like I'm so excited about this idea of, like, the Breaking Bad timeline and the Better Call Saul timeline. We're finally at that point where they're about to converge. And I'm yeah. so curious how they're going to do it. But the fact that what's in the show, period, it doesn't really... I don't... that. It gets it's a fake sense of excitement of like ooh I can't wait to whenever he's gonna show up are we gonna spend ten eleven weeks just waiting for his cameo now yeah as opposed to like oh there it is oh my god like being completely surprised cool. by it yeah no I, I agree I, I agree I think it's yeah maybe they're just trying to get though that 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 point five percent and it's gonna be like yep I'm gonna watch five and a half seasons <laughs> I'm gonna do it right now yeah get up to it I mean. I, I I hope to sit down and watch it someday. Yeah, but you I, have to. It's, your it's news of you telling me brilliant. that is not prompting me to suddenly binge five seasons. Exactly. You yeah. telling me every second episode to watch Better Call Saul <laughs> <laughs> is probably going to prompt me. Well, that's it. It's the story that they've they've built, and um, like I, I I'm not worried about this narratively speaking yeah. because I absolutely trust the way they're going to use those characters and how it's all going to converge. It's just, like, why rob us of the excitement? Like, what was so special about, like, Huel when he first appeared? And I should be clarified, like, that Huel cameo is not just a cameo. Like, once he's in the show, he's in it for, like, every few episodes. And you really understand how deep his and Jimmy's relationship goes. But, you know, what, what what's so special other than just, like, a main cast? of like, Oh, look, Hank's back for a couple of episodes. Let's yeah. announce it weeks in advance. It's like, come on. And the thing is, you know AMC's doing this because... You will notice a big cameo when, you know, it comes up with the opening credits in the first act, and it's like, starring Bob Odenkirk, Jonathan Banks, Racy Horn, and all the big ones that will leave, they don't come up until the very end, and then the actual end credits come up, and yeah. then you see that one guest starring, you know, whoever. Yeah. Um, John Carlos Pizzito. And they did that for, for Dean Norris, and Steve for Michael Gazzardis, and it's like, well, if they did it, then they obviously did it with the intention of not revealing it ahead of time. So, you know, AMC is just like, guys, can we just tell everyone that they're in it? Guys, please. Yeah. So, the fact that the creators themselves aren't, I feel like they're not getting a say is what worries me about that. But, oh, well, that's it is how it is. I just needed to mention that because I thought it was drastically interesting. Um, and I'm still excited for the Absolutely. new series, which is coming Have out very soon. you caught anything else in the last week? I did, Zeke. I caught one film, not related to the film of the week. Okay. So... I was very excited because I got in the car with Blake on Saturday and we're driving around. He does Uber Eats now, you know, just to pass the time between jobs. 
So I sometimes join him and I help him do the deliveries. Just before. Reminds me of the old Domino's days. And well, like, all right, we're going to finish this delivery and then we're going to drive over to the movies. Everything, everywhere, all at once is playing at, I think it was like 6.30 outdoor cinema. Mm-hmm. And we're sort of umming and ahhing like, mm, do we want to watch this as outdoor as our first like experience, blah, blah, blah. And like, you know what, screw it, let's do it. So as we're driving, I check my phone and it's sold out. I'm like, damn, that sucks. Swing and a miss. So... Well, like, all right, let's let's turn around. Let's go to Hoyt's. We instead watch another film of equal praise and quality, Sony's Morbius. Yeah, I'm just reading through it right now. Directed by Daniel <laughs> Espinosa. Um, Directed by Sony Computer Entertainment Pictures. I just mix from it uh, great f- uh, from film fame notes such as Child Forty Four, Safe House, and Life. Oh yeah, Life. I do remember that. The the. <laughs> I'll say this about Morbius because we don't need to get into how terrible it is. My review, that, I, that my notes, I just literally wrote down things that happened in the film which motivated my one and a half star review on Letterboxd. It's sitting on a 1.9. Yeah. Equivalent, uh, same score as The Bubble right now. There you go. I actually would say I probably got more out of this than The Bubble because The Bubble was like an extra 30 minutes long and if a film is equally as bad... Then you just want less of it. <laughs> oh no, the bubble's beating it. It's got two. Oh really? Yeah. Oh, it went back up. Who's watching the bubble and like this is excellent? I shouldn't say things like that, but look, um, I'll say this about Morbius. There was one sound effect that I was like, oh, this is pretty cool, like an echolation sound effect, where the theater was like erupting and my chair was shaking. I was like, ooh, that's pretty nifty. And Jared Leto, we make fun of him in the show all the time, all the time, Zeke. He was surprisingly bearable in this film. He is like maybe the ninth worst thing about this film. Which tells you a lot about the film itself. I'm going to list a bunch of things I like noted in my head while watching this film. That I just wrote <laughs> down. The there is an opening in media res sequence that is never actually paid off. Now credit, Blake did say, oh actually that was paid off in this scene. To which I was like, I'm still very confused why any of this exists. Um, it proceeds to go to a flashback of him as a kid where another kid gets like connected to some sort of electrical thing and then starts like basically not having a heart attack but basically like dies on the bed and of course Jared Leto as a child he looks like the kid from Wonder I wonder why they <laughs> I wonder why they made that creative decision for Jared Leto as a child okay. opens the thing and like puts like a little springy metal piece in it and, and saves him and it cuts to him talking to some sort of doctor scientist character being like we have a bunch of scientists that we couldn't figure out how to fix this machine and you did it with one piece of of metal string or whatever to which my thing is why were you intentionally putting damaged machines that you knew didn't work into little children's arms (laughs) and then proceeds to cut to the future where jared leto is getting a like an honorary medal award thing from like the prince of england or something to which it cuts later to him talking to a child being like, man, you really pissed off the Prince of England, didn't you? And I'm like, I know it's a movie where you show and don't tell. Why don't you just show him not getting along with this character as opposed to cutting away from the scene that you already spent the budget to get extras in <laughs> and just tell us that information instead? There's also a thing where he does, he makes two like syringes with poison and just doesn't pay off one of them. Okay. The film just ends and never actually pays off one of them. Matt Smith's character, Jesus 
Christ. What a waste of Matt Smith. What, oh my God. What did they do to my boy Matt Smith in this movie? So good in he, Last Night Soho. I've been saying, I was like, man, he would fit so well in like the Reeves Batman universe. Okay. Yeah. I can see that. Like um, one of like a, like a Jim Gordon-esque in, sort of police, yeah, per- or a villain. That you're a villain. Of. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. See, well in this, he's evil for just no reason. He has the same infliction as Dr. Morbius has and their childhood friends. And even though it would have made way more sense for him to have, like, a hint of desperation beforehand, he sees Jared Leto turn himself into a vampire, and he's, like, locked in a glass case, like, like, struggling to, like, survive, violently, like, throwing himself around. He's like, I need blood! I need blood! So Matt Smith bloody drags himself out to get this blood and watches his friend just, like, skull it down. And he's like, I found a cure! But it, it's too late for me. It's disgusting. Ah, oh, I'm murdering all these people. And Matt Smith's like, yeah, that's all right. I still want it, though. And then there's this evil afterwards for no reason. Okay. And, like, kills people for fun. And then, not once, Zeke, not twice, is there a scene where Dr. Morbius is, like, holding a loved one in his arms. Says some sort of cliche, like, you must stop him. Ugh. Or, or another line, like, oh, you know, make this... Make it all worth it. You know, don't make this worth nothing. This happens three times in ten minutes. With three different characters. Nice. And then which Morbius drinks her blood? <laughs> and yes, one of them. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I Oh my god. And then it reminded me of Anley's The Hulk. Like, structurally. It's the same movie. Someone, like, with an infliction creates a monster version of themselves that they can't control, except this one actually has, like, no plot, because he just, like, doesn't know what he wants to do about it. And you could have easily juxtaposed that with Max Smith's character. It was like, oh, well, he's enjoying eating people and, like, all of that, and, and our hero should not enjoy that, even though he's like, oh, this is bad, but then just still eats, like, random nurses for no reason. Like, you see, this is like, this is the only way I can talk about this film. It's just all the nonsensical BS that just happens in it. Yeah, you you really know how to, uh, uh, I was going to say, you really, you really do know how to, uh, pick a movie, Jake. (laughs) Going from the highest rated currently on Letterboxd to... of all time, yeah. That uh, happened in the last week. We were raving about, I was talking about how excited I was to watch this film, everything, everywhere, all at once. And since that recording, it became the number one highest rated film of all time on Letterboxd, which has really only happened to, like, two other films. I think The Godfather was, like, the first. That was, like, the base. And then a couple years ago, Parasite took over that lead, and then now this film's taken over that lead. So it's not a common occurrence for a film to get this much praise. And we chose to watch Morbius over it because we were indecisive Mm. and didn't get tickets in time. That was your that was your this, punishment. I know, I deserve it. it was your penance. I deserve all of this. Zeke, what did you watch this week? <laughs> um, well, uh, obviously following my very intense uh, six unit semester, I finally got to clock in actual movies this week. Yeah, I was going to say you've you've uh, reduced it down from six to three units in a week. And boy does it change. So, I won't talk about one of the films, uh, one of the documentaries I watched. Yes. Because it ties in with our film of the week, The Last Worlds. Ooh. So, I will save it for the second half of the show. Yeah. I did manage to get in that new Richard Linklater film, Apollo Ten and a Half, a space age childhood good film. A space what? Age. Okay, age. 
Yes. Gotcha. Heard it right. Great film. <laughs> Tight 90. Love the rotoscoping. Love the exploration of Is it a life. tight 90? I thought it was like two hours. It's one hour 39, I'm pretty sure. 98 okay. minutes. Okay, fair enough. There you go. Uh, great exploration into life in the late 60s, mm. um, which is, yeah, I, I feel like what you brought up last week is pretty much all you need from uh, uh, to understand in this film. To sell people on it. Yeah, if look, yeah. the reality is it did confirm exactly what I, you know, my understanding of Linklater's sort of snapshot of reality cinema, mm. um, which is sort of, I think his greatest underpinning is, or his greatest strength is using real, like exploring the singular or, or um, uh, by, I'm trying to think of the right word now, um, binocular vision Mm, um point of binocular point of view really Um, focusing on a time and place and just encapsulating yeah you know and he does it with you know um the before trilogy through the eyes of of two people dating each other or romantically pursuing each other but still having that very contemporary like each of those films could only exist though they have transcendental meanings which you know go back to those episodes where we talk about it yeah those films, those moments could only exist in that time and that place. And we're going to talk about contemporary context and yeah. that with, you know, the second half of the show. But Linklater is probably the best director out there for encapsulating the vision and understanding of a personal perspective at a period of time. And Boyhood really is the magnum opus of that. Yeah, um, yeah. Seeing as we're following that sort of understanding as the we boy move growing through. Up. Yeah, as we move through, you know, 12 years. This sort of adds on to that boyhood um, world. Yeah. Obviously, we stick with just an 11-year-old's perspective on it. The word childhood comes back into play, I guess. Yeah, but it's obviously, it's an 11-year-old's perspective on one of, you know, probably one of, if not the biggest accomplishment, achievement of human, the human feat in the 20th century, Mm. um, which was the moon landing and sort of re- Contextualizing it was fake, Zeke. Isn't it fake? And it's truly fascinating. Well, it's, it's fascinating. <laughs> so, you know, he's 11 in it. My mum was 11 when oh, um, wow. my dad was 12. And my mum's always said, um, and I found this is really funny when watching the film because it sort of echoed. She, she remembers watching it, obviously, because of the time difference. A lot of Australian kids got to watch it in school when oh, school was on. Oh, fascinating. Yeah. And she said... That when on the TV rolls the the the, the VHA, yeah. you know, the, the that, that literally happens as well in yeah. Apollo ten and a half. Not not for the moon landing, or was it for the moon landing? No, no, no. they're watching it at home because it was late in America. Yeah, yeah, but um, but there was a scene at some point. Yeah, in, yeah, in Apollo and ten and a half. She yeah. said she was like, I didn't think it was that uh, important or special because I always thought people went to the moon all the time. Like, Interesting. In terms of the imagination, you know, she, my mum was very, you know, she arty, fair, you know, offered the fairies kind yep. of, she yep. says, she was an offered the fairies kind of kid. Yeah. Um, which sort of actually buys into this, you know, too, quite a bit. Um, because obviously there's that thing where it's like, it's a child's imagination. And, you know, how he was, how memory interpretation mm, yeah. works. And- I, you know, I just, I, I have to talk to you about this. So I'll say, if, if you want to go into this film semi-cold and I recommend you do um, regardless of what we just talked about like maybe just skip the next few minutes of this podcast because I need to talk to you about 
really the the third act, I guess, or the last third of this yeah. film in regards to, you're right, the imagination of a child and how that inflicts the memory that a child has. Because I think this film walks the perfect balance of, you know, first off, committing to its own story of a, of a you know, a kid, an 11-year-old kid. Stan. Go, Stan going into space and being the actual first human to walk the moon as opposed to, you know, the actual real events that this film also depicts. But what I love is the the editing around it and the emotional weight of having everyone watching and reacting to this thing that Stan doesn't have that same reaction to because he's past that point. That him and the other astronauts involved in the secret project um, have already had this experience and this feeling and have achieved this thing and how the editing interweaves that so the emotionality is, is there for both parts of it. And then again, that last line of, of you know, regardless of you know, you, who grew up to remember and think that he saw it all, what that implies about how much of this is imagination versus mm-hmm. some sort of real narrative. And, you know, it's brilliant. It is. It's, it's fantastic writing and so potent. And that's what it really made me ring was like my mum thinking of that yeah. as an 11-year-old girl. And... Um, it pretty much echoes sort of the same sentiment Stan has, you know, like, oh, well, I thought people did it. Like, not understanding the cultural significance yeah. of that moment in time yeah. resonating while, and that conversation that happens between his parents as they're putting Stan to bed yeah. is short, sweet, and concise, but it gets exactly what it's supposed to be. And really, what this is, is we're basically through Jack, we're basically understanding what life was like in 1969 from the the viewpoint of Jack Black, really, yeah. he's, as a grown up stand narrator, this this omin, om, omniscient uh, voice, and that's awesome. It's like it's such a clever, hmm. concise film and very potent. But and stylistically, I think that, that everything in this film has meaning because doing it through the the rotoscope yeah. animation is the best way of encapsulating, I actually talked about this on the why I thought tower was one of the best yeah. documentaries. Okay. This and is that going was way back. Way back. But it, the reason why that was so resonant was obviously it was a bunch of, you know, this was a 2017 documentary, I think, or 2018 documentary. Around then. Yeah. Um, in which they were talking about, admittedly a, a way a, a life-changing um you know a shooting in and in, in a university texas tower and obviously it was from different perspectives of those who were there that day yeah but obviously it was people talking about it f- you know 50 years on like. yeah yeah so using the cell sh- uh, this the rotoscoping drawing animation style was a great way of creating this cinematic engaging story of mm. these people, like piecing it together. So we actually got the, so the build up to finally, you know, shooting the shooter yeah. was as dramatic as a film, but at the same time played on that subjective discourse idea and how gray and ambiguous it could get, because this is not a direct memory. We are not sure, s- yeah. you know, this is something that they're, having to remember 40 50 years ago and for some of them an incredibly traumatic incident so they've repressed parts of that memory so what we're getting is the closest thing to the the day without blurring that line of where 
we're clearly saying this is not completely what would have happened. Yeah. The intricacies of day life and having that animation there basically is stating how almost how we think about memories and how we would visually describe memories more accurately. Yeah, that's a, that's a wonderful pull as well because from memory, what they do in that is, I'm guessing they shoot the actual interviews with the you know the people, the actual victims of the day, and then put the rotoscoping animation over it. And what I remember them doing is they're actually their younger selves. Yeah, they are. So they make the young, the interviewee subjects their younger selves, and then you compare them to them in the actual, I guess, the world of the film. You know, by the tower. Yeah. Uh, and and melding those two styles into one. You're right. You sort of. And if I recall correctly, at the end they get rid of the cell shading and show what they're like. Right. In the modern okay. Day. That's sick. Yeah. Like that was the final note. They get rid of the the um, rotoscoping and just show you yeah. what they look like as forty, fifty years on. And that's great because until that point, they're removing that dissonance of of seeing, you know, the old the older person and then cutting back to an animation of what happened before. And by conjoining those and actually making them one and the same, you're almost validating the stories even more. Even though it is a like you say a commentary on their memory of the event. But I think it just works really well for what it does, and and I think pulling it for space age, uh, space aged uh, childhood. Jeez, I forgot for a second, which I'm going to call it that now because that's a much more accurate title than the first half, the Polo Ten and a Half. Um, it again, it comments on memory in the same way. Yeah, and I think that's really special. Yeah, yeah, Polo Ten and a Half is excellent. Big positives. The only other film other than the other documentary that I'll tie to the second half of the show mm. was just. A nice casual uh, film came out actually last year. I remember this coming into to Lunar In and Out. Okay. Um, Best Sellers by Lena Rosala, I'm going to say. Mm-hmm. Um, this is actually her directorial debut. Um, only logged film on oh, uh, Letterboxd. Um, starring Michael Caine and Aubrey Plaza. And I am Michael Caine. Yes. Yeah. And dun, it basically, dun, dun, dun. You know, Michael Caine is obviously a... <laughs> a uh, writer that's only produced one seminal work at this point has been in hibernation and it's Aubrey Plaza's who is in a dying publishing business uh, duty to try and get one last book to save her father's company. Okay. Simple, efficient. I think it was, you know, like the last thing you get left on is like a font thing for, for my dad. So clearly this might be a very deeply personal story. Yeah. Um, and yeah, look, it was perfectly like I think I wrote to you, I typed to you, perfectly quaint film, which is the best. Yeah, I like that quaint. Yeah, That's three stars, simple, word. easy to watch, very like very low stakes. Yeah, it's a sweet film. Yeah. yeah. So, what was that on again? Netflix. Binge. 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 Yeah, you're using up your binge while you have it. Milking it. <laughs> Milking it. I was my key, but it's got a good array of There's stuff. There's some great stuff on binge. Yeah, I recommend it. I think our Apple TV finally lapsed. In the house. Mm. Um, so after rewatching Coda, there's really no other. There's some good stuff. Watch Wolf Walkers. Watch Wolf Walkers. So, and no. then and then quit. <laughs> yeah, Apple TV Plus. <laughs> yeah, I got nothing added on this half of the show. No, that's fair enough. Well, I, I guess I got a couple of notes, fun little tidbits from the career updates of the week because I sent you this. We were talking about how we got the Cinemasage podcast on IMDb we recently. Did. And um, I was complaining about how you have to individually log every single episode and every single description and cast and produce the name and all the thumbnails going separately. And, of course, you have to do that for nearly 170 episodes now. Mm-hmm. Plus, I was updating a bunch of other stuff that I was in through IMDb and other stuff that I worked on. I didn't realize that I cracked about 
1,800 contributions last month. And I got an email the other day saying that I had made the leaderboard for top contributors of IMDb in the month of March 2022. Congratulations. I, thank you. <laughs> I got rank 258, so I was in the top 300, which is... <laughs> I was not doing that intentionally. I didn't realize that low. Because you get an email for every combination or contribution. So I must mm. have got 1,800 emails just working with IMDb, which is absolutely insane. That is um, pretty crazy. But the other thing I guess I'll mention... and. I know we talked about this to some extent, the short film that mm-hmm. I wrote. Uh, well, I think the latest draft was actually November now. I haven't updated it since, but it's been something that I've been working on the in the corner, in the corner of little old Jake's life. And I'm trying to remember the last time we, we talked about it actively. Oh, it would have been the test shoot that we did start of February. So whatever was the first or second episode of February, a couple months ago, I would have talked about it. Um, I don't remember if I named it. I, well, the, the title was Skin and Bliss. That's the name of the film. And in the last week, we built the rain machine for it. Which, uh, what does that imply, Zeke, about the film? Is that we hand-built a rain machine for it? It's very, very interesting. Um, yeah. I think it might have something to do with uh, the car's actually going to go into uh, deep water. Like, for a swim. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. The car's going for a swim. Yeah, and blistering occurs from too much exposure <laughs> to water. No, obviously, <laughs> That's good. much like the rain you've probably heard at this point in this podcast. I know, we might as well shoot in real rain. <laughs> what did I spend all this time doing? Um, oh, God. Yeah, so, very exciting. Yeah, I want to thank good. Blake. Thank you. I want to thank Blake Thompson. There's a lot of a lot of words in there um, for helping me. Just go to Bunnings and just winning it. <laughs> winning it. But um, we ended up getting about four metres worth of uh, PVC pipes that we sort of sawed and glued together with the extenders and the the uh, the taps are going. It's basically um, retic. So just on, um, what's it called? Hogtied to light stands, the um, cable ties, uh, which I only had to use one on each end. I was kind of surprised how sturdy it was. Um, it does bend in the middle though, but you put it on top of a car and then you sort of put a little blanket thing, and then it's oh, sort of rests on that. Sure, especially with your brand new car. Yeah, exact brand new car. I don't want to, <laughs> don't want to mess with it too much. Eat it. Um, but yeah, that setup as is works pretty well. I want to see if I can get the intensity better, but the range is actually pretty good. Like it actually covers the entire car, which we learned from the test shoot. And you pointed out, Zeke, that as much as you would like to concentrate the water on whatever is in front of the camera, it's mm-hmm. so, like, okay, you just, you know, you get your miss on scene, what's in front of the lens, and then you, you cover that with rain, and what you're missing is the um, realistic shadows that come from rain actually being like a 360 degree, so you would miss the, the shadows of the rain driplets on the actors' face. Yeah, it's like subtle things. It's always the little yeah, things. Yeah. And as someone who's done a couple of films with cars now, it's, yeah, that's the big yeah. difference, I think. In and out of the studio as well. Yeah, <laughs> Both and examples. definitely would hold more to stationary cars with someone just pushing the car. It makes a big difference, I think. Green yeah. screen, get someone pressing on the car, does the job. But very exciting stuff, Jake. Oh, it's Hopefully exciting. more news for that maybe later in the year. Yeah, exactly. It's coming slowly but surely. It's the best way to put it. But yeah, that's it for me, career-wise. No drums. Well, it is time for us to move into the film of the week. But Jake, what are we watching? This week on the show, Zeke, we're watching The Last Waltz. The band has been together 16 years. It's a damn impossible way of life.
to live with 20 years on the road. I don't think I could even discuss it. We gave our final concert, the band's final concert. We called it the last waltz. Such a night. Such a night. Why'd you have to get so drunk and lead me on that way? You just picked up a hitcher. Prisoner of the white lines on the freeway. taken a lot of the great ones. Hank Williams, Buddy Holly, Otis Redding, Janice, Jimi Hendrix, Elvis. It's a damn impossible way of life. It started as a concert, it became a celebration. Martin Scorsese's documentary intertwines footage of the band's incredible farewell tour with probing backstage interviews, featured performances by Eric Clapton, Bob Dylan, Joni Mitchell, Van Morrison, and other rock legends. And other. The other part <laughs> is, is key. Um, mm. But to be fair, it's a stacked roster, so trying to fit all those names in one log yeah. line would yeah. be... Too difficult, I think. Yeah, that's fair enough. Well, the last waltz. I have a question for you. Did you play this film loud? <laughs> Can we just point out how awesome that is? Like, I mm. actually really appreciate the subtle nuances of, especially a younger Martin Scorsese, like clearly appreciating, because um, obviously there's so much backstage trivia and and behind yeah. the scenes documentary Tons. stuff and. I'll touch on a little bit with the other uh, documentary I watched, which is, a, in my opinion, a, a perfect spiritual sequel mm. to this uh, concert slash music documentary. Um, yeah, I definitely did play it loud, but I'm <laughs> I'm a massive fan. The band's probably the band I think on Spotify for. I want to say at least the last uh, since I've had Spotify is always coming yep. in second or third on my uh, top five artists. Right, in terms of like the most. Obviously, to, yeah. as mentioned at the start of the show, Cat Empire has taken it out every year. <laughs> um, with the second to fifth always alternating. I think the Lumineers jumped to second this year and oh, they yeah. dropped to like fourth. But they're coming in. I definitely would put them if I had a top ten bands. The band would probably sit in my top five for sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's funny because, you know, if we went ahead and did a, a Cat Empire discussion, it, it would have been a much more of a equal knowledge balance. But what we got here is, you know, like I said, I've never seen this film before today. Mm. And what's exciting about it is I'm actually watching through it. I was like, I'm actually not very familiar with the majority of the band's music. So it was completely fresh experience for me. And as you were saying off the show, this is definitely an experience almost a transformative experience yeah <laughs> um, 
I think uh, the I'll get the exact quote because I often I said this I've been told this multiple times despite having a show that's now run nearly 170 episodes. Yeah, I do think I'm better at typing things than I am uh, talking. <laughs> that's because you uh, you got time to actually type it out. That's I, the difference. My and I really think this will s- summarize what I'm summarize gonna basically what I'm going to discuss. It truly is an overwhelming and transcendental piece of music history and mm-hmm. documentary cinema. And I think that that's generally the underpinning notion of anyone that was involved in the production of this documentary slash concert. Yeah. Um, anyone that watches The Last Waltz or even attended any of their concerts, I think it truly is a, a culturally significant moment in time that came after, you know, 16 years of this the band existing together mm-hmm. in one form or another, which is a very important thing. Before we jump into the documentary itself, and yep. I probably will come back and forth with uh, the knowledge that comes from um, the other documentary. So the other documentary I'm talking about is currently on Binge. Uh, yeah, another Binge shout-out. And I was very excited <laughs> when this came out back in t- late 2018 and just never got a chance to watch it yep. until now, which was One Through Your Brothers is the name of the documentary, and it is the spiritual sequel. It's mostly driven by um, the one of the two remaining alive members of the band. So there's five. Okay. Um, Garth, Levon, Robbie Robinson... Uh, Richard Danko and oh, I always forget the other one, but um, Robbie Robertson, Richard Manuel, yeah, yeah. yes, Manuel. There's, who's two, actually, there's two Ricks in there. <laughs> yeah, so Danko and Manuel were the first two to pass away, and then Helm was the last one. Garth is still alive, but obviously doesn't interview even mostly in this documentary, and he's a very private person. So sure, yeah. Robertson, much like in Last Waltz, is the spiritual driver of One mm. Fewer Brothers, um, and. Uh, Scors- what's so good about it is Scorsese actually is the camera's flipped on him, so he's actually an interviewee. Oh, now. that's cool. That's Not cool. the interviewer, and so he talks about the the making of the documentary, but he also talks about like his relationship with the band and the music and why it was so important. Which was really cool to get that mm. directorial critical lens, which is able to um, you know transcend like we can transform that over into his application in the last waltz yeah well there's definitely a reflective um almost a participatory element of of documentary mode in this documentary because he is in the frame and you can hear him giving direction off camera and you know he does sneak in there every time to time which for me i thought that was a more of a reflection of the casualness and the coolness of the band Mm -hmm. and the fact that scorsese made a very um decisive move to include himself in his own questions from time to time in the documentary because he knew well that was the only way to get authenticity from the band is to just make it like he's they're talking i think also and it's it's interesting so their band manager was the one that recommended scorsese following his documentary work on woodstock the 1970 documentary obviously discussing another seminal music moment um so and obviously like we've said this film came out in 1978 He's in the middle of some of his biggest works. So he's a very yeah. busy man at this time. So to slot in... This night actually happened in 76, but the 
the documentary didn't come out for another year and a half, I think. Yeah. Well, they they, um, they would have shot this the same year that Taxi Driver released, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. So, that's uh, that's quite interesting in itself. But I, I feel like he was so good about this um, because he didn't just take this... He didn't take a... First off, he did it pro bono. Didn't get oh, paid that's for awesome. it at all. Makes sense. Which I really shows the investment in he... And I think part of him inserts himself into those conversations... Because he really wants you to know he's the director of this documentary because he actually recognises how important culturally, artistically, this event was mm. and made it in him through his behind-the-scenes being on camera interviews and, and you know, he talks about more in The Once We Were Brothers how he chose to shoot the concert and turn mm. it more into a documentary and less into a concert, a concert movie, yeah. And I'm going to make key to discuss why it is a music documentary and not a concert, just a concert ported over. Mm. Um, you highlighted one of the key things, which is it's not a start-to-finish concert. They've cut no, significant there's, parts. No, there's lots of bits in there. Yeah. Um, but it basically, yeah, I think he helps elevate it because he make, it basically shows that although Robbie Robertson, like you said, with the coolness is like, they play it down. Like, Oh, we're just getting a couple of friends to come play us. It's like, no, no, you're getting some of the biggest artists at the height (laughs) of their careers to come and play in a night. Yeah. For like no money too. Like like, a lot of them didn't get paid. They just came and jammed with their friends basically. Yeah. And the concert, you know, it was a concert hall. So it wasn't like a big 60,000 stadium. It was, I think the concert hall itself is only like five or six thousand people, which really not a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, um, much more intimate experience. Well, it's funny because yes, yeah, Scorsese sort of very early on poses that question, and again, this is the brilliance of him including himself in it. Is he's posing it as like you know, oh, they're not just your like your friends though. Is that really how you see it? Because Scorsese is right in the middle of his own version of that in the film industry. He is part of the you know, sort of the, the, the group of 70s auteur filmmakers uh, like, you know, George Lucas, for example, like Steven Spielberg. Um, you know, this was the same dec- decade that The Godfather was made and, you know, this was all a tight-knit group. So in terms of him, just his friends would just so happen to be some of the greatest living filmmakers of their time and still our time because they're all alive, I'm pretty sure, still. Mm. Um, obviously, just some of the band aren't anymore. Quick side, Winterland mm. Ballroom, obviously, is the setting for this concert. Yep. Only 5,400 people can fit in it. Jeez, wow. And Very intimate. Yeah. <laughs> but it's like Scorsese phrasing that question. It's like, he knows exactly what that's like. Because, yes, yeah, some of his best friends are the greatest filmmakers of all time. And I think... At that, that time. What this epitomizes, this night or this thing, is really a cultural artistic revolution that has occurred or renaissance that has occurred over the the, the early the decade that preceded it um mm. or the decade sorry that occurred before this this night and like you said i 100 percent agree it's like he's in the filmic renaissance he's a reflection of that and in the same this decade is, this is yeah the 70s is crazy when you think about this this artistic revolution and like the how the they they actually talk about it in the documentary. Robertson recounts how songs were transforming. They started commenting Mm. on the world around them, less about trying to entertain and and engage. And, you know, there were forefathers for that. Like, uh, you know, Johnny Cash was obviously a a very, Mm. you know, Bob Dylan was like, these are the people that started to create that folk shift. And then even Hank Williams to an extent. Yeah, exactly. So it's like, 
and then we get the what the results we get of that are you know performances from the band and performances from Joni Mitchell and 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 Neil and Neil Young and and Neil mm. Diamond and it's like they're all in this doing their own you know and it's just fascinating and remarkable and I think that side of it is is tr- truly amazing and mm. then you know like the best part about the Once We Were Brothers side is it really talks about the behind the scenes context to why was this the last night the band decided right. what what led to it and it does have that subjective discourse that it's solely from the, the member that's willing to talk and also alive but right. more form like what we discover is you know like key members of richard manuel danko and and levon helm all got addicted to heroin okay yeah and that's whereas robbie robinson was married and had kids and mm. was a bit of a straight man it was more about it was solely about the music expertise right. and then they talk about over the course of the three albums the band released the writing credits went from every member of the band to pretty much just garth hudson and yeah. robbie robertson like Very the two surviving members yeah um and it ended up being, I think it got to a point where, you know, he wanted to become very family orientated with his wife, who he's still with. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> that's amazing a, considering, yeah. Considering the industry they're in. Yeah. Um, the on the road lifestyle and the fact that there were heroin addicts and, and I know coke addicts and pretty Well, sure certain that. members were <laughs> on cocaine while performing. <laughs> that did as, digitize them out. I read that somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was the most expensive. He said it was the most expensive line of coke, like Scorsese did, line of cocaine um, he's ever had to, quote, do. <laughs> Because Neil Young came on the stage <laughs> with uh, a bit of donut powder. Uh, absolutely a brilliant line. <laughs> and it apparently costs like nearly 10 grand to, yeah. to get that out. And obviously now... Nowadays we could probably do it ourselves. Do it, yeah, probably comfortably. next to nothing. Whereas like yeah. back then it's like film reeling and like I don't even know how oh to do God, it. Oh my God, yeah, because it was a shot in 35mm film. And it, and I sort of what I found really interesting that the ones we were brothers thing touched, touched on that plays into the conversation is Scorsese's election to completely get rid of the audience. So the audience does oh. not... We do not get a single shot of audiences reacting to any of the stars coming on stage... Oh, I see what you mean. And it is solely married to the stage. And then at yeah. times, it isn't even it's disembodied. It it goes into the music video territory where certain songs are yeah. recorded on a sound stage and shot in that music video way to really get a clean sound, a clean performance. Yeah. Almost to highlight their quintessential nature of how we almost got the studio side versus the live performance side. Mm. And it's, it's interesting because I wrote a whole thing about really what my takeaway was from the film, the message of the film. Because you're right. I mean, what I think more so than the little documentarian participatory parts in between the songs and the fact that every now and then it is sort of a studio recording was the thematic behind it, the fertility of life on the road and the fact that you can't yeah. do that forever because look how many people it's killed over the years. And I think the fact that those little tidbits and those sound bites that are very honest and very reflective of the band, yeah, and you're right, particularly of I'm imagining Robbie Robson being sort of the lead in that message, seeing his friends sort of go for that yeah. heroin addiction, is yeah, you can't do this forever, and that's the line they pop in. But it doesn't, it not only doesn't affect the pace of the actual concert movie aspect of it because they're all quite 
um, quickly put in there. But then as we get closer to the end, we see these um, elongated sections where they're going into, I think it's like the Shangala like little tour room where they actually just go into the chill and do music, mm-hmm. which which is another great example right there is you have that that one beat of, of, um, of I think it's Rick and then Martin Scorsese. They kind of look at the camera for a few seconds yeah. before they do their bit. And that's another little like, oh, that's them waiting for their cue, which I like they left it in there on yeah. purpose. Um, but then that leads into the studio recording of, I think it's Evergeline. That's um, mm. what is Evangeline. The, yeah. Evangeline, jeez, excuse me. Um, that's the actual studio recording piece. But that comes in during that tour of the Shangri-La mm-hmm. sort of um, recording studio, if you will. And it, it just adds to that thing of of um but the use of the like the ethereal ethereal, well yeah the smoke machine and and otherworldliness yes well yeah and then what they're trying to do that's when we're pushing that real film code it's almost you know it's funny we haven't done many documentaries on this but dick johnson sort of touches on it in a way yeah that like how it goes fantastical sort of element and obviously it's way more loud in dick johnson um (laughs) But it's like the moments where he's like talking about enjoying life and then they cut to the slow-mo footage of him just being surrounded by dancers yeah. and having this great time. <laughs> and you're sort of like, it's that thing where it's like, what we're trying to show is how their music and their their ability as, as composers and songwriters is mm. so prolific and profound that it elicits this ethereal response. Like we are watching the music take off and, you know, you can get that without that element to it because you know we've got films like once where we're yep. authentically just watching two musicians put together this yeah. piece and we're very grounded the... and not a lot of editing around it or or fantastical elements but I, to it but i kind of love this too because yep. it's it's not it's not a music video for the sake of a music video we're trying to we're just seeing that these were some of the most i mean you have three of the like one thing they highlight in once we were brothers is you have three of the most uniquely sounding singers mm. which most bands don't have three really strong singers they normally have one yeah, or two yeah like you got your bloody drummer is doing vocals yeah, as well yeah so Levon yeah, Levon Helms pretty much what people would label the lead singer because he, he's yeah, probably wow. the lead singer of all of them and then you've got Richard Danko who's probably another and Robbie Robertson and it's like yeah. all three of them have got completely unique voices to each other yeah. yet somehow managed to harmonize and work together really well and that's crazy for a band to have three. And then to have one, like, you know, we're, we're talking... It's so funny that Cat Empire was supposed to be... Um, sort of in, at, the, in this in, musical slot we've created Yeah, ourselves. and it's, it's yeah. sort of a similar... Like, I'd say, obviously, these guys are iconic and legendary and yep. sort of transcendental in that music nature. But to have, like, Garth Hudson, like, the ability to play two pianos at the same time and then yeah. just a, a vast array of different... Like, he, he's playing the piano and then he gets up and plays the saxophone. Like, <laughs> I think the, the, the flexibility of the band was, yeah. as attested by a lot of the people that come on stage, is what made them so important to that time. Because, yeah. you know, and Once We Were Brothers touches on the, the Bob Dylan stuff, which is so important because they went before they were formally known as the band, they toured with uh, Bob, completely rejected because Bob had just went from his folk country stage into electric. Oh, okay. Was met with booze and, and heckling and Bob's just, you know, Bob's just telling him to ride the wave. Yeah. After they release music from Big Pink, which is where The Weight comes from and, like, which is probably their most iconic song that's yeah, used the oh, most, probably. The amazing. Um, and... 
then they go on another tour in 74, two years before this, and they're embraced with love because it's now the band touring with Bob Dylan and it's yeah. like a completely different... And at that point, we've embraced it's the audience Dylan's, as well and the expectation. Uh, electric. Yeah. And that sort of evolution over that time. And it's just, yeah, it, it's... A f- watching them on stage, particularly like how all... They're all very talented for different reasons, but it's like little things like when Eric Clapton's playing and obviously a prof- one of the most widely known amazing electric guitarists mm. out there but his strap breaks halfway through the, the number oh, and ro- like <laughs> and he can't like he can't play because he's, he's been thrown completely off and yeah. rob robinson like he picks robbie robinson picks up on immediately and just starts riffing like immediately like just instinctually yeah, yeah. does it there's like, this com- i mean this is it with all great artists is like the almost telecommunication they're able to do just through looks and glances and like the sound they're all up there um, and we see a bit of that again with the way the pacing is done. Whether obviously Scorsese directs the pacing when he cuts to something like a studio mm. recording, but sometimes, like you know, when and um, Bob Dylan would just sort of give a glance, and you can tell, like, okay, they're about to transition from Forever Young to Baby, Let Me Follow You Down, and it's just like a seamless thing that all happens in real time on stage through their own yeah. communication. So I think like all great artists just have that, just that knack of being able to like carry each other in moments when that you in the strap. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it it really goes to show. And I, I sort of, you know, I like you know, I brought up that trivia fact of the imperfections of the show. They've left a lot of that like or yes. you know, we joke we just joked about the Neil Young thing, but it's like did they did they stop? No, they played it. And the funniest thing is it's like he sounds great. Like that, you could tell <laughs> I remember what upon my rewatch this week, I watched that performance knowing that context, and I'm looking at Danko and Robertson look at each other mm. like He's he's Isaac right now. I don't know what he's gonna do, and see it but now, they yeah. still just go along with it, and it sounds amazing, and it's yeah. just like it's truly remarkable to me. I think. Well, to um, to that point with like the imperfections, and they left them in there. I mean, they leave them in there with the interviews when they totally the easiest thing in the world to fix, but they leave them in there. But then there's that moment. I think it's the cameras focused on Levon Helm when he's doing the night they drove old Dixie down. My favorite and, song by the band, and you can see the camera starts to pan away and then quickly whips back to him without any, like, there's no reason to cut around it. They just yeah. kind of leave that mistake in there. Yeah. And I love that because it just, it reminds you of just how rough and tumble this whole yeah. production was. And I, and I wrote it down because I remember reading about how this original originally going to be a 16 millimeter recording. And Scorsese kind of came in and, and made it this bigger thing where it's like, all right, they're going to get like seven 35 millimeter cameras and they've got, like, these gigantic DOPs like Michael Chapman, who did Raging Bull. And I'm going to get his name wrong. Lasvo uh, Kovacs, who shot Easy Rider. They're on as just, like, essentially camera operators. Mm. And you got these big names, each just shooting their and, angle and at it, the thing. And it shows, because it's, like, mm. like, they keep those... Although we like those those in, like those things that make it more authentic and more yeah. real and not as, as robotic, it makes it more human. But it... You you can tell like they knew exactly like Scorsese knew exactly when to cut to what like what was happening with what and who was moving, even with all of these unpredictable natures of artists which we see over the course of the night yeah. that um, certain things happen and and certain like uh, sort of quirks apparently Bob Dylan before going on stage said mm-hmm. he didn't want to be in the documentary because if he had something else concurrently going at the same time and yep. 
So they had to leave the last, they agreed to leave the last two songs in or like film only the last two songs, which yeah. meant they had to get those two songs right on the day. And Yeah, yeah. And this is the unpredictable nature of, of show business and filmmaking and especially this volatile, immediate documentary filmmaking mm. to try and get the right nuances and, and, and points. And that's well, full credit it's, it's, to... yeah the whole team working on that, but particularly Scorsese, he said he was like, he had blueprints at the stage and yeah, yeah, every square meter, and everything. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, that's truly amazing, especially as, um, you know, I've watched my fair share of live performance, DVD coverages and stuff. And even like, you know, we've brought up Cat Empire a couple of times, but their last concert that they broadcast their mm. farewell concert. Yep. It had some real problems with the live coverage. Like they cut right. to awkward. Like there was so there is an art form to it. Oh, of course, of course there is, um, and we and we noticed that. And even like when they did their free show of Cat Empire in um, uh, in Gosnells, yeah. we noticed like the technical issues, and it's, it's like okay, well it was a free family friendly show. Yeah, and we could tell based on like the bigger productions where we actually like paid quite a bit of money to see this performance. You can tell yeah. the difference, and in terms of recording it. It's a whole, and you talked about the editing was terrible, and that it would always, whenever it would cut to a fan reaction, it would always be like the wrong moment or someone mm-hmm. looking bored, which is like there's an art to picking and choosing those moments and getting the energy just constantly up. Yeah, and I think it's like what Scorsese highlights in the Once We Were Brothers documentary about it's about the band. Where yep. folk, this documentary is about focusing on the band and their relationships and their downtime and them going into stores with big overcoats and stealing <laughs> meats while buying bread so they could just get by. We're exploring that. We don't need to... The, we know the 5,000 people in there are having the best night of their life. Yep. Like, they're going to applaud and cheer and enjoy the music, and that's fantastic. But yeah. Well, I watch this being like... I, I'm comparing it to, like, watching Queen at Live Aid in 85. Like, yeah. that level of, like, imagine being at this concert. I don't need to see the audience their faces and they to gener- understand and, and the importance that of that. Live Aid performance, they genu- they generally avoid cutting to the crowd because we see the crowd. Yeah. It's 80,000 people. We don't <laughs> need to see... There. We don't need to see Joe or Larry having a good time or getting emotional because we've got the gist of it yeah. from an atmosphere point of view. And really, these names speak for themselves. If we cut... If if this... If they had a, a live cam, it really would actually take away... And make it more feel just like a concert recording because that person is like, you know, that person doesn't belong in this cultural moment, really. Yeah. Because they're there. And that's more important, I think. And I think the precedent gets set with when Scorsese, one of the first shot, mm. when he's just in the car rolling into the concert. Yeah. And he just films the line standing outside the ballroom. Yeah. Like, we know these people are going to be here and look at the line and how crazy these people were. <laughs> and we got to think this is back in a time where you couldn't just order your tickets online. Those people were waiting to buy a ticket. Yeah, yeah. Whole different age. Yeah. I mean, you get envious of it. And I think that's one of the things that people talk about. And of course, one of the main reasons we're doing this film now, in addition to everything we talked about with the relativity-ness to Cat Empire's last yeah. performance and us missing that, but the fact that this film is now part of the Criterion Collection, you mm-hmm. can buy the Criterion. And it's like, there's a reason that they've selected this film to archive. There's a reason it's in the the national, I forget the name of it, but the American sort of archival library of Congress. That's the one before preservation, the U.S. National Film Registry. That's what I'm looking at. But there's a reason that people are looking at this film and being like, this is culturally significant. And it's like you talked about the cultural significance of it musically. 
but even as a film, it is capturing a tone and a time and place that is gone. Yeah, it's a sentiment that we sort of touched on a little bit with Apollo 10 and a half and what Linklater yeah. does so well. But in all seriousness, Scorsese achieves it perfectly in this. Like, he he explores the intricacies and extrinsic nature of, of being in a, in a band mm. um, and explores that mental state. I mean, if anything, one thing I, I love now when I'm watching it and he's sitting down in the back is I now have a memory I can almost directly associate when we got the opportunity to sit with a band backstage yeah. for an hour and a half. Like, it was a <laughs> significant period of time mm. where... We could talk to them about anything. Like yeah. it didn't even really have to be to do with music, and a lot of it wasn't. Yeah, yeah, and it's it, it's like you know it's that that's truly amazing. It wasn't it wasn't even just like it was just being in that that zone. And I I think it would have been it'd be really cool um, if and I de- it would have been cool on the night if maybe they had someone backstage filming everyone. But obviously it's a privacy oh, yeah. thing and and behind the behind yeah. the curtains that that detail might be a you know too far and you probably wouldn't get to see much footage because there'd probably be a lot of inappropriate stuff happening but um <laughs> this is as close as we get and it was still really really yeah, impressive yeah. well it's interesting because i compared this this documentary to a much more recent sort of musical bio documentary and the sparks brothers and their documentary that was directed by edgar wright and I really enjoyed that, and it's a very, it's, even though it's well over two hours long, it's a very whip pace sort of history lesson on everything that's important culturally and significantly about that band. But that does the opposite of what The Last Waltz does, because that is dissecting the band and just like going through their Wikipedia history, just snapshotting mm. every element of that. While The Last Waltz very scarcely does that at all. It's very, like, quote unquote, contemporary. It's very in the moment. The majority of the film is mm. just the concert. But the concert in itself says so much of what we need to learn about the band and their attitude and their yeah. style and their message. And it's like, like I said, it, that's what makes the Once We Were Brothers spiritual sequel because mm. you get a lot of that stuff in that. So More if you want, it's, stuff. but I would 100% recommend watching it in the chronological release order. Like, mm. watch Last Waltz first if yep. you want to learn more about it. Watch Once We Were Brothers. Yeah, thousand percent. I need to watch this because it's. It's great in terms of just giving you more context, mm. which then allows you to go back to Last Waltz on a second on a second watch, yep. and understand even more of the intricacies going on and what exactly what cultural resonance and personal resonance that that performance had on everyone involved in the filmmaking process yeah. and performing process. Well, that's what's so special about this is like, even though it is for the majority of it just a concert movie, there is so much to take away from rewatching, and even just those little bits he puts in there about the self-reflection, the line where he says, you know, we've been doing this for 16 years, I can't even imagine what 20 years would do, which isn't that far away in that context, but it's like, that recontextualizes every single song that's played afterwards, is because they include that little line there, and, and obviously this the film that you saw in Binge is doing the same on a much bigger scale. Absolutely. Yeah. So Exciting. before we jump into highlight scenes, Jake. Sure. I gotta I gotta I gotta know. What was your favorite song? Um it would probably have to be and we've mentioned it already. And did any of them get added to your Spotify playlist? No, well, a lot of them are gonna get added tonight, don't yeah. worry. I'm actually gonna go ahead and say probably helpless. Yeah. It's that was real, the one that really spoke to me. It's a real banger. Yeah. Um 
definitely on like first watch i would be up there i think it's it's the consolidation of the band's performance neil young um it's funny with the background context but still managing to pull together a very cohesive performance that's very yeah. powerful oh, incredible yeah and the Joni mitchell ethereal voice is that is, was yeah that it's was like, just wow, the collo- and cool. then that final the final push at the end there when they're all singing on the same microphone and mm-hmm. mitchell's in the background and really we really get to hear everyone's voices in this unison in this imperfect unison but sure. still not it wasn't harmonized by any by any stretch but powerful um I definitely would say that, but it's probably, it still probably either is in terms of the concert performances, because I think the last waltz, they call that the last waltz suite version. Oh, yeah. It's in the suite. Yeah. Is, is fantastic with sort of the way they, the cutting. Mm. That's one thing in that scene, like in that particular song, when they obviously shoot it in the suite, they're able to do a little bit more potent editing, but it's like when they do like the harmony, when they go like, and, and, and they cut mm. to Danko, um, Helm and Robertson in that. I'm just like, that is just perfect. Like what yeah. you're doing there is you're encapsulating the lyrical undertones of this and why it's so prolific. But in terms of the concert ones, it's gotta be the night they drove all Dixie down. Cause oh, the way when Helm yep. just builds those drums up, to the, like the crescendo <laughs> is just so good every time i think yeah. that ended up being my second most played song oh, two wow. years ago on spotify or something like that i think it was most played actually is it are these performances specifically on spotify yeah so you can oh, get so this is fun because there's, there's a 1978 album and a 2002 one that's what I'm reading. Uh, yeah, maybe it's yeah like and there's now after. a f- i think there's a, well they did a 40th anniversary re-release oh, so um Obviously, off the air, I'll just send you, really the, send you the album. But yeah, of course. I actually... So, this was one quick side tangent, but relative to the... I obviously wanted this on vinyl. It oh, is course, the toughest yeah. thing to find on vinyl. Like, is it expensive or you literally Very can't expensive. Find it? Okay. So, like, your yep. 40th anniversary will set you back 170 bucks. I managed to snipe an eBay. I think it was... I want to say it was probably close to an original pressing, a very early pressing... Mm. And it was like 40 bucks. And I oh got it one day God. on eBay. And it's the full <laughs> concert. And even the suites, which they do a suite for, I think, um, it makes no difference. The weight, Evangeline, and mm. the night they drove all Dixie Town, and Ophelia. Which, okay, uh, yeah. Ophelia's a banger too. Yeah. Um, and yeah, they put those all together on one. And yeah, it's a very, it's, it's awesome. Um, we didn't even touch on like the generational side, like having Muddy Waters come out and perform, like, <laughs> like that's just crazy to me. I'm like Ronnie Hawkins, yeah. But yeah, sure. um, it's on Spotify. It's fantastic. You and the best way they've structured it now on Spotify is they have all of the concert songs, so you can listen to the whole concert, and then at yep. the end they've got the sweet songs. Ah, oh, cool. So it's not ordered like the the not, film. Is. Yeah, exactly. The film it's has its just own order, chronological, yeah. and it's it's outright. It's fantastic. Uh, yeah. Following yeah. it getting added on Criterion Collection, played it at the tavern I work at. Oh, all wonderful. Because it's amazing for that, because you've got all those artists performing on it too. Yeah, it's actually quite a good mix. Yeah. Which, yeah. So, Jake, what is your highlight scene? Yeah, so I'm actually kind of glad we separated this, because I, as much as I love the rendition of Helpless that they, they played on stage, I would actually have to give it, and this is more of it for a cinematic reason, is I would have to actually give it to the weight. And the reason is the way they actually shot it 
with the cameras, for some reason, it just felt like the cameras were a lot closer to the stage and looked like they were actually getting more angular with how much sort of they're moving the camera to the sides yeah. and they're actually able to frame many of the people almost side by side, almost like a kaleidoscope. I know they've got the girls from Staple Singers and they have them sort of almost lined perfectly alongside each other. And Almost I, like a mirror. I was going to say, I, I really like, what I like about the way that scene is, is how it, it operates like, the song operates like a bell curve. So mm. the song is about sort of, at, like it's a rote, like Robbie Robertson touches on it. Um, in Once We Were Brothers, what the, the, the motion behind the song is. So yep. before, when he got into the original band, which was with Ronnie Hawkins, which was Ronnie Hawkins and the Hawk, like the Ronnie and the Hawks, Ronnie which, the Hawks. which is where he met Levon <laughs> Helm. Oh, yeah. Um, and and basically all the members of the band eventually joined the Hawks Then mm. when they went and toured with Dylan and then they came back and created the band. Because at that point, they had just been called, oh, that's Bob Dylan's backing band. That's Ronnie Hawke's right. backing band. <laughs> and then that's what I love about when Richard Manuel is giving that anecdote and then it leads into The Weight because The Weight is the song that put them on the map. Yeah. So it's from a historical point of view, it's so subtle because if we're just taking it in the scope of The Last Waltz, it's amazing because it's like, I understand that's the song that put them on the map because if you're watching this in 1978, you're like, that's the song that I know the band for, The yep. Weight. And this guy's just told me why they're called the band. And it's like just perfect sequential storytelling. Yeah. Without saying anything. Like, <sighs> oh, this is the song we put me on the map. No, we'll just show you the song. Yeah. And it's then it's edited that... in such a way, yeah, that you can make that and connection. I think what the, I like about that song is obviously, yeah, like they had, the, they had the singers from the Staples. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to show how diverse this song is, how it's been reinterpreted, like reinterpolinated into other artist works and how it's about this journey of consult like as the weight verses go along we're adding new people to this this bus that's going down yeah um down to nazareth which is apparently nazareth in pennsylvania didn't know that because i always thought it was a biblical undertones to it um right yeah but which it sort of is there you know they use like luke and and such like that from new testament but Mm. yeah i love that like how and almost as like when the girls from the Staples sing the second verse, we don't see them until the second. As well yeah, we don't to, see them until the second verse starts. Mm. When um, I'm not sure his name, but the gentleman sings in the third verse about Luke, he gets added in. He wasn't there in the second verse. Mm. Like it's cons- they they get added as they sing their verses, which yeah. rather than them all just standing there and singing their verses, and we we see them all as a collective at the start. No, no, they get added as the journey comes along. When Danko gets the fourth verse. It puts a spotlight on him. Yeah. Like, it's really... Are you sure the other license didn't explode? <laughs> yeah. It's, in terms of... We really get that consolidation of music artistry meets um, filmic artistry, the weight scene, and even st- visual... St- like I said, yeah. the visual... Audiovisual storytelling, it all gets done in that sequence. And it's probably why it's the most uh, prolific. It definitely stood to me in that way. Now, Zeke... <laughs> You had so much to say about my highlight scene. <laughs> yeah. How much on earth do you have to say about your own highlight scene? <laughs> I'd probably look. I'd, I honestly, I really do like the the ending with Dylan, and particularly, I shall be released with everyone. Right, with up. literally, yeah, with everyone. It's it's obviously you know look, it's a little cheesy, but it also shows the gravitas, the cultural gravitas of the event, having everyone come back on the stage, and yeah. And obviously getting, like, Ringo to come on and, pl- <laughs> like, sing a verse. And, yeah. 
and um and Ronnie Wood come on and sing and who's everyone one just of the... crap their pants <laughs> collectively. Yeah, and it's like just like oh, you just got the Beatles and Ronnie Wood. It's crazy. Like, but it and it's kind of messy because it's so you really grasp how many people you've seen during the night where they come on the stage. So there's yeah. like twenty of them on the stage. So that's clearly only supposed to house six or seven of them and they they're kind of not really singing and it still sounds really good but it obviously like i said it has that imperfection it's not harmonized or quiet it's yeah it's just 20 people well you you forgive it because like up until that point there is such a playfulness amongst and like you said so many especially of the band they they can sort of interchange roles and instruments in a way and like so many of them are vocalists themselves and I think that playfulness, and that's one of the things we love about you know the Cat Empire as well, and the, like how many how much flexibility mm. there are between the members there, is when you do something like this, even though it hasn't been like overly rehearsed and prepared, you still appreciate it because you've got so many experimenting artists on stage yeah. at once just playing. And the coverage is really good considering the 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 bodies on the stage and yeah as you know what they're really trying to do with that scene especially is they're trying to they use a lot more long shots it's a little less intimate it's a bit more wider and what they're really trying to show is this is look at how many artists like prolific profound artists that some which most people now most commentators retrospectively are like well that one artist changed the course of the 70s they because of their prolific sure, works and now we're timesing that by five ten people you know there's at least 10 of those artists on that stage that people would be like, they altered with their words. Like that's yeah. a prolific singer songwriter. And I think that that's why that scene is, is so good. And then it leads into that, that nice waltz music and mm. just the, the two finale. little <laughs> subtle things. Like, you know, like the wipe with the last waltz using the dances. I'm like, that's so clear. Yeah. Like, how do they do that in the seventies? Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> Struggle to do that now. <laughs> Yeah, I do. I get incredibly intimidated because I'm picturing this like obviously we do that final performance, and then that that I don't even think that was the final performance on the actual stage because there's apparently there's some jams that they must have done afterwards according to this list. I don't know if maybe it was yeah, that's sort of the outtake stuff, right? Exactly. But in terms of, like a big climax, I'm thinking from the perspective of Martin Scorsese and his whole cinematography team. Like and apparently there were lots of times where they would have to choose songs to reload mags and cameras um, throughout, and that's why I can't remember which performance. I think it's the muddy muddy waters performance, only has one angle, I believe. Yeah, the because, manish, yeah. manish boy one, yeah. Right, because I think I read that literally six out of seven cameras were being reloaded with film, and only one actually caught the performance. Yeah, which is mind boggling. And then you know they complete their task. It's and a long song too. Yeah, <laughs> um, especially that and Caledonia are like really long songs because yeah. back in the day it's like that was like the way to do it and it's like and it's such a good song but it's like yeah that that would be the stress levels oh my god and then once it's all done and you like you just have like all of these reels of film and a truck and you're like how in the world do I put this all together like, I, we have it so easy now Zeke. yeah and it's like <laughs> that's the other thing it's like the reason why events like this were not filmed start to finish was because the gravitas of it, or they, if they were, they were like two cameras or three cameras. Yeah, there was, there was a fixed and a floating, like, yeah. and maybe another one, like max three, like in most like things, like if it was preceding this. And it's like, so the amount of, yeah, the, the sheer gravitas of the event. It, it speaks volumes. Yeah. And you can tell even like us watching this in, in 2022, is like 
we can tell just by looking at it and watching. We're like, yeah, there was the amount of love and attention that went into this, that was poured into this. It's a wonderful film. The Last Waltz is currently out in wide release, i.e. the mm. Criterion Collection. Unfortunately, it's not on any streaming platforms No, right now. I had to borrow your DVD, Zeke. I know. But it was cool. a great DVD, nevertheless. I, was, I had the option to watch it. I love it. I love it. It wasn't hidden in the settings. It would literally play movie like in mono and then play with surround sound. I was like, ooh, I, I see what's going on here. And it is, if you own it, something you play loud. That is true. You must play it loud. Well, Zeke, i got to say, streaming, this is the second week in a row that streaming's just completely failed us in terms of what's coming out in the next week. Because other than Space Jam and New Legacy for binge, I know you're going through your binge catalogue, but... You might want to avoid that one. <laughs> I'm not yeah. too sure. Um, and a new film coming to Netflix, which is a British horror film called Choose or Die, which I'll quickly just describe. It's about a broke student who plays an obscure 80 survival computer game in which the goal of the game turns from earning $100,000 to simply surviving. There you go. Ooh. Other than that, that's streaming <laughs> for the for the week. Seriously, it's, wow. a, it's a bit... Yeah, nothing really stood out to Surely me. All cinemas have got something more to give. They do, they do, a little bit. New to cinemas, you have the unbearable weight of massive talent. So this is the super meta Nick Cage plays Nick Cage movie that I've mm. seen a million posters. For. Something I, f- I feel on this podcast every week. <laughs> <laughs> You'll find this film very relatable, Zeke. Um, so it sees Nick Cage as Nick Cage who accepts a $1 million offer to attend a wealthy fan's birthday party. He is a very cash-stricken at this point, I believe. Uh, which, of course, naturally leads to the CIA recruiting him to replay his own iconic roles in order to save not only himself, but his loved ones. Um, I'm wondering if this is more or less meta than adaptation. <laughs> which he plays his own twin. If you, if you, Okay, if you're listening to this podcast and you don't know what adaptation is, look it up. It is the most bizarre thing ever. Of course Charlie Kaufman's involved. You don't even need to ask. Um, but I'm I'm excited for it. Well, it's doing pretty well on Letterboxd. I think uh, it's, it's got, got Pedro a... Pascal in it. Yes, it does. I think he's sort of co-starring it. I think it has a 100% Rotten Tomatoes score, I think. 3.7 on... Uh... On Letterboxd. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm definitely much more... We all know my feelings on the Rotten Tomatoes score, but 100% is always a good sign. We also got Happening which takes place in the 1960s and sees a bright student's life turned upside down when she suddenly becomes pregnant. Now, I thought, I was like, okay, that seems like an interesting drama. But then I read some reviews comparing it to Titan. And I was like, okay, this is going to be pretty messed up, yo. <laughs> so we will see. And finally, and most excitedly, everything, everywhere, all at once, is finally releasing wide on the 14th of April. So from this Thursday, you'll be able to see it Whenever you want. I think the Camelot, Lunar Camelot, has a preview screening on the 12th. So on Tuesday. Oh, okay. So if, you, if you're really desperate to catch it, you can get it on Tuesday. I'm probably just going to wait till the 14th. Yes. And then maybe a bunch of us will go and see it. Because I'm very, very excited for it. But that's it. That's what's coming to cinemas this week. And streaming, I guess. <laughs> very few things coming to streaming. Uh, so I found me. this is quite interesting. Mm-hmm. So obviously, I was looking into the Nicolas Cage one. Okay, that you've just brought up, and the director's obviously only directed one of the feature film. And Netflix has got another one of those uh, f-word moments. Um, so the oh. only other film they've directed was on Letterbox coined that awkward moment, which obviously stars uh, Miles Teller, Zac Efron, and Michael B. Jordan. And I went, oh, there was another film that stars all three of these. And right. I've, 
which was, are we officially dating? Uh, oh. So, so in Australia, titles. that is, are we officially dating? Which I watched uh, a year or two ago. It was a very eh film. Yeah. Not very yeah. great, but I was just like, oh, so it's another F word situation. Yeah, the F word being what if is the alternative title with Daniel Radcliffe and so, Adam Driver. There you go. That's interesting. I think Netflix have actually changed it to what if. I think I saw it the other day. I was like, I think they finally changed it. Yeah, but what's wrong with an awkward moment versus are we officially dating? Why That's is true. There... Like, the F word is the F word, so. There's a very I odd... don't, Zeke, I don't know. Okay, I don't. Uh, flying high and an airplane. Okay, like, this This just happens. Yeah. And I'm confused by it, but I, I'm not going to challenge it. I don't yeah. have the power to, Zeke. There you go. <laughs> I wish I did, but I don't. <laughs> well, we're now going to move into our latest director's corner. But Jake, who yeah. is the director and what are we watching? So we decided, Zeke, we, I don't think we've covered a single film, actually, for Mr. Robert Zemeckis. I'm excited. So, of course. Of course, Zeke. We're feeling nostalgic. Of course. We've got to watch Back to the Future. Where are you going? About 30 years. Marty McFly travels back in time using his eccentric scientist's time machine. However, in order to return to the present, he must make his high school age parents fall in love again. So I grew up with this film. Oh this was God, like this was the yeah. this was the probably the most played trilogy in my house. Wow. I'd say okay. I would probably say it's a fair. I think this got more screen time or as much screen time as like Star Wars did. Um, yeah. Okay. Wow. So this is just gonna be a fun. This is gonna be a fun review. Isn't oh my it? God! Of course. I mean, it, first off, it's absolutely shocking that we haven't done. As a Mecca's film, or especially Back to the Future at all. Yeah, I'm um, going to make my mission to watch other Zemeckis films mm, more than yes. more than this film because I pretty much could probably quote this film start to finish. Oh my god, of course we so, could. So I'm going to push more to watch other blacklist ones. Like <laughs> I've never seen Cast Away, so that'll yeah, probably be yeah. my mission. That'll be a big one. I've never seen Contact. And, I'll get that in there. I hadn't watched Forrest Gump until like a year or two ago. Really? Yeah. Oh, I love Forrest Gump. I love. That's one of the movies that, like, I know, I know, Zeke, you know, we could talk about it next week, but, like, Forrest Gump is one of those, like, there's one line in that film that just breaks me every time. Like, just one individual line that kills me. But um, Back to the Future is full of incredible lines in an incredible screenplay for an incredible film. Well, we'll just, we'll just rave about it next week, Zeke. Yeah, no worries. We'll but until then, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Sideshow Podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. We'll catch you next week with Back 
future.